Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Mohammed Fraser Rahim, author of the book America's Other Muslims, Imam W.D. Muhammad, Islamic Reform and the Making of American Islam. Mohammed Fraser Rahim is the executive director of Quilliam International and assistant professor at the Citadel. Mohammed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to write this book? Yeah, this book is really culmination of, I think, of a lot of my experiences, uh, both professionally, academically, and personally. And really uh, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, being a descendant of Gullah Geechee, which is that uh, rich community along the Sea Islands of South Carolina and Georgia, along with about 30 miles inward as well, who have been able to retain their cultural tradition um, and practices um, with their roots back to West Africa. Um, I grew up uh, as uh, generations of, uh, um, of, 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 um, of African Americans who decided to um, transition to Islam as a way of life. And so I have, like many African Americans um, who have mixed families of religion, of, uh, of ethnicities and culture and identity. And uh, this book really kind of fuses that personal experience and then certainly my time, which we'll get into probably in a minute, um, having worked in the U.S. government, working on broader issues of violent extremism and then my academic work as a historian as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the work that you do with Quilliam as well? Sure. I mean, so, you know, Quilliam and so interesting after Quilliam is a, is the oldest counter extremism organization in the world established by former extremists themselves. And so you can imagine the journey of individuals um, exit in and out of extremism can be a very personal, complicated um, uh, journey. And so Quilliam um, was established over a decade ago of individuals who um, saw the need to have support and in, 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 in particularly in our Western democracies and looking for ways where they can provide assistance for those who are making their journey and then comment on these sort of broader issues, uh, both in, the, in, in its origin being in the United Kingdom where it was founded in London. And then I opened up our offices three and a half years ago in the United States, where I handle our portfolio, our policy uh, directives, um, and then handle programmatically. I should say there's three things we focus on. One, it's, um, it is the policy focus area, like any do slash think tank that many of you all are familiar with. Secondly, we do programmatic efforts, meaning we work real time on interventions. We work on programmatic support, whether it is directly working with individuals who are um, incarcerated and on their journey out. Uh, we work across the spectrum. So certainly historically, we started off dealing with Islamists, those who take a twisted interpretation of Islam. But we work with individuals who are far right, uh, who have white supremacist ideology, black supremacists. Um, we are agnostic to the issue and trying to work to reform, to rehabilitate um, individuals on that journey. And then lastly, we, we do media engagement in, me, in, in, the, in the sense of we write op-eds, we put think pieces out there and, and provide thought leadership, um, certainly from Washington, but our work is global. And so I, I handle our portfolio domestically, but a, a lot of our efforts I've handled is in Africa and the Middle East and certainly in, uh, in, in, in the Caribbean too as well. Um, it's really a global effort as well. Turning to the book, I wanted to begin our discussion with just a little bit of dialogue about the language choices. And you talk in the first chapter about the different language used in both geographic and historical contexts when we're referring to African Muslims, African American Muslims, and Black Islam. Can you speak to how language is important, not just to be precise in what we're speaking about, but also how language 
can be used to recognize the traditions of the past and understand how Islam is situated in America and, and the black community? Absolutely. You know, right now we're in a, we're in a pandemic and it's quite interesting that the p- pandemic has, has taken place, but there's also another sort of uh, virus that I hear uh, pundits on TV talk about, and that is the broader conversation of what it means to deal with the, the issue of the America's original sin, which is slavery and race relations and identity. And I think that that's a really important way to tee it up because we're dealing with a broader conversation of Black Lives Matter and whether this is a monolith or is Black Lives Matter movement uh, a hyphenated um, group that has many different splinters. These are real questions that only time will tell and how it will unfold. And I bring that up because even the terminology, the evolution of when we talk about African, Black, um, I even talk about in the book the term Bilalian. For African-Americans or individuals who made their journey by force on, um, and and it's quite interesting, I grew up in Charleston, because Charleston, South Carolina was in particularly uh, uh, an island um, right off the coast of Charleston, not that far, it's maybe a couple miles, uh, it's called Sullivan's Island. Sullivan's Island for African-Americans was synonymous with Ellis Island for many other immigrants who arrived into the United States and particularly in New York. Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, was the entry point where uh, enslaved Africans would then be quarantined. Quite interesting language that we're using that in light of what we're doing, dealing with now with the pandemic. Individuals, enslaved Africans, would be quarantined in which they then would uh, stay there for a period of time, so upwards of two weeks, longer, to make sure that there was no diseases before they could come onto mainland Charleston. And I think this is quite interesting that we have, you know, the, the, the terminology of this struggle of like, what do we mean when we define and what, who has become uh, an African-American for newly arrived immigrants who are second generation, third generation Africans from the continent of Africa, 54 nations uh, to be, are they African-American? That hyphenation, is that all encompassing for African-American who are descendant of enslaved Africans? And even my language choice uh, using enslaved versus slave, there was no agency for individuals um, who happened to be, um, who were, who were part of this chattel slavery that we know. So the the language of many scholars, uh, Robin Kelly, the late Dr. Suleiman Yang, Alan Oss, many others um, have argued to say enslave is a better use because it, it captures and gives them, um, um, it, it structures their experience. And so um, when we talk about black and African, African-American, that language has always been a struggle, I think, from African-American communities, the term colored. Um, and so as you can hear the evolution and, and last point just on this um, and, and why it's so important to, to be meticulous in the languages for African-American Muslims, descendant of enslaved Africans or black American Muslims, that's oftentimes used and coined. The late Dr. C. Eric Lincoln, uh, African-American writer and thinker um, from the 50s, 60s, used to describe what he called the black Muslim movement um, or Muslims who happened to be black. He called them black Muslims, making a clear distinction of they were black in identity and they were Muslims and they were black Americans living in the United States. So you can even hear me um, um, unpack these terms. Um, they, there has, there has never been a clear, um, uh, a guidance, if you will, of what that terminology is. And I think African-American communities have always struggled with, with that appropriate uses. But what I will say, connecting it back to the book is that for those members of which we'll get into later of the nation of Islam and those Islamic hybrid movements, it was this desire to connect themselves back to their African ancestral roots as a means to reclaim their identity that had been lost in the American South and the great migration to the North, their journey of being stripped of their name arriving into plantation societies, despite them coming and bringing their technical skill set, the indigo, the rice cultivation in South Carolina, um, and its uh, ability to make South Carolina economy strong and vibrant was a direct result of the technical skills 
of individuals who were descendants of enslaved Africans. And so this desire to try to come up with terminology and name was this is 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 for for these movements that we'll learn from shortly uh, was this desire to connect them back to home. Where is home? Um, home is this desire to 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 connect to some roots. And so um, 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 I think it was Naguib Mahfouz, the Egyptian writer, who said that in, in paraphrasing that uh, home is where all attempts to escape ceases. And Naguib Mahfouz is this brilliant Egyptian writer who is famous for his Cairo trilogy and who gives the perspectives and insights of life in, uh, in, in, in Egyptian society. The peasants, the fellahin, will often describe those even who lived on the outside and the periphery as well. So I think for, for African-Americans, this desire to, um, to, to find their purpose um, and the use of Bilalian, which we'll get into a bit later, um, by those Black American Muslims, those African American Muslims, were was a connecting with Bilal, who was one of the first individuals who uh, declared their faith publicly in Islam, who happened to be an ins- who happened to be um, enslaved in Arabian society, and who was raised high up into the honor, according to the Islamic narrative, who became the call to prayer, the caller to prayer, the muaddin as well. So this is, uh, this, this use of terminology, um, also is for those who are in the American context, trying to connect them to a broader, rich tradition of the past, um, without, um, sometimes the tools, without the technical tools of, 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 of a long tradition. And I, and I point to, I point to, this very interesting idea of, you know, the late Dr. Suleiman Yang, Samari uh, Rashid, very well known. I, I referenced the late Dr. Suleiman Yang, who, um, who I studied under um, at Howard University, who was well known for his work on Islam in America, Islam in Africa, um, a brilliant intellectual and thinker who builds off the works of individuals like Fazal Rahman, um, um, rich, uh, a rich tradition. And um, what he argues um, is that there was a, essentially a 40 to 60 year gap between African Islam and African American Islam. And this 40 to 60 year gap is really interesting. Whether it's an exact precise number um, is really not the exact point of it, but the more of there was this separation of um, of of those rich traditions, as I highlight in the book, of knowledge of uh, if if you're Catholic, the form of rich catechism, of Catholic catechism that was passed down from generation to generation. For for African Muslims, their connection to Afri- to the Arabian society, Islam coming down post seventh century, and Islam negotiating, adapting a form of Islamization, Islamization and Africanization of Islam, and how that fused into one. And so, for centuries, we have Islamic learning and scholarship that developed and cultivated in West Africa and East Africa. Which, uh, which learned from the tradition of uh, Arab, uh, Arabian society, but it also took its own form. And so many of the texts and books that are well-known, the works of the Risala, uh, well-known treaties um, written by an Islamic writer and thinker, um, many of these books and texts that are well-known in West Africa um, and in East Africa too as well, but let's use West Africa for a moment because of the connection to many of the enslaved Africans. That gap was cut off when individuals arrived into the new world. And so when you have a gap, when you have a severance, when you have a cutoff, when you have the, an absolutely an erasure of families, a breakdown, the mother being sent to the Caribbean, the father being sent to South Carolina, the, uh, 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 the child being sent to Louisiana, those bonds, those familial bonds were severed and therefore new stories, new creations were developed. And I think that that 40, 60 year gap between African Islam and African American Islam or black Islam um, was a uh, w- was one in which there was a severance and then a recreation or a renewal or a new form of Islam. And that's why I frame it as Islamic hybridity, uh, Islamic hybrid 
um, a um, which many scholars call proto-Islam, but I like to be a little bit more precise in my language, that these these adaptive forms of Islam rose, were a direct result of the Jim Crow South, a direct result of chattel slavery, a direct result of segregation and racism in the, in, um, and being in the American context, which would develop and create what we know the modern day um, African-American Muslim community, but broader American Muslim community as well. And within the book, you make it clear that there are several entry points in different lineages of African-American Islam. And one of these entry points that you, you spoke to just briefly is Islam coming to the U.S. through the forced enslavement of people brought from West Africa. And you describe the history of Islam in West Africa, which brings to mind you know, the libraries and scholarly institutions of Timbuktu. Can you talk about the heritage of Islam in West Africa and how this has come to shape Islam in the U.S.? Absolutely. You know, the um, in the American imagination, we have a very um, we have a very different lens of how we see the African continent, and particularly, I think, West Africa. Um, yes, you know, the rise of particularly 2013, we saw um, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghrib and prior, let's use 9-11, but post 9-11, we saw the ascendancy of Al-Qaeda franchise groups and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghrib being one who um, essentially becomes a quintessential Al-Qaeda brand in West Africa or the broader Sahel. Why? Because they were able to offer and use kidnapping for ransom payments that were able to then, um, they were able to get money off of uh, European and um, some Asian countries um, as a result of kidnapping their personnel um, who were in those uh, uh, countries. And so I think that this is really an interesting because um, prior to what we know, modern day transnational terrorist movements and networks operating we have a rich tradition in what would be considered those dusty places, right? In Niamey, Niger, and Agadez, uh, in, in, in Timbuktu, certainly that we all know as a place of learning. But throughout West Africa, you have uh, in Kano, Nigeria, all throughout the Sahel, you have a rich tradition of that learning where individuals um, found Islam, this new faith. And they then were able to, um, they were, this new faith became a means for them to both um, learn the rich tradition, but also offer an enrichment. I talk about in the book how the use of Arabic language, um, which has three vowel marks, right? Um, Essentially an a, e, u sound, and and then additional ones too as well. But, 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 but if you look at, for example, Wolof, or if you have Hausa, if you have Kiswahili, you have um, more vowel marks in those traditions that oftentimes many of them are oral traditions. And so what they did, like um, many other religious traditions, would use English. But in, for these West Africans, they would use uh, Arabic language and then they would use the Arabic, excuse me, Arabic script, which would then um, be, uh, if you will, will um, superimposed or adopted into their local language. So that really, in fact, oftentimes for one who might be a purist coming from um, maybe the broader Arab Islamic world in Damascus or in, uh, in Baghdad with the Abbasid and the Umayyad societies reigned and had a rich tradition of scholarship and learning. Um, these West Africans, um, what is phrases in the words of Falu Ngom, who teaches at Boston University and others, is that they brought an enrichment in using Ajami script. Ajami means Arab, non-Arab. And uh, they brought, um, they use Ajami script. So you have Wolof Ajami, using the Arabic script for their local language. So for commercial interactions, you have uh, Wolof Ajami historically used for commercial interaction. And you have men and women who, quote unquote, oftentimes are framed as being illiterate, but they have mastery of Wolof Ajami. So how are we defining literacy? How are we defining it? Is it just based off, if you know, sort of a European language, English or French? Um, And so this really requires us to really re-examine how we have really thought about the contribution of these societies. And as I mentioned to you earlier, these West African Islamic institutions also were able to bring and learn from 
um, those rich works, the Muqaddama al-Iziyah, which is well-known, the Muqtasa al-Akhdari by uh, a, a well-known Islamic jurist, al-Aqari, and then also uh, al-Shadili, which is, uh, you know, well-known Islamic scholars. Um, and, you know, also the works of the Risala. These individuals would memorize these texts and they would, they would take it to heart. And we know that the great, one of uh, a well-known West African scholar, said that, you know, um, um, I no longer need Baghdad nor Fez. I captured this in the book. Upon seeing Jolof, I submitted. I no longer needed Baghdad nor Fez. Upon seeing Jolof, I submitted. I think that really captures well your question, which is, you know, Baghdad, Iraq, the the, the center for um the a translation movement, the uh, wonderful book, if you haven't read, called The Art of Party Crashing in Iraq by Emily Seelove. It's about almost about 10 years old, but just the, the rich tradition of learning and scholarship in these societies. I mean, obviously, Fez Morocco, well known for many West Africans who would travel there for interaction. Um, we have the Sheikh... Um, uh, we have we have well known um, interaction between uh, Malian thinkers and Islamic writers who interacted interacted with their Moroccan counterparts, um, and 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 so with what I hear in in sort of an analytical framing of this is these West Africans were able to go to these far distant places, but when they came back home they were also able to institute what they had learned. And I think it's quite interesting. I've said this on, on various occasions when I studied abroad in West Africa as a, as a college student in Senegal, Mali, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and the Gambia, my father and my mother too as well, but my father in particular, um, who was the Imam of the, of the mosque I grew up in, in Charleston. Uh, he was, a um, he's retired now. Um, but he was an environmental engineer, civil engineer for the U.S. government, um, very much into science. And he was a layman mosque that I grew up for about 15 years. And he said, when, I, when you go there, master those traditions, learn, be open, but do not become someone else. And I, at the time, I, I, I could not quite understand what that actually meant because I was young and probably a bit, bit, uh, bit know-it-all and super excited to be in West Africa. But what I think he was telling me was the same thing that I'm sure maybe a West African people had been told when he studied in in um, in, in the Arab world, or or some uh, Javanese or someone from Indonesia and Malaysia who studied in Egypt. And I remember studying in Egypt and seeing friends who and who were from from Indonesia, Malaysia, and they were learning. But they said, "Hey, I'm going back home." I can't, I'm not going to stay in Egypt forever. Many of them were studying at Al-Azhar, the Center for Sunni Islamic Scholarship. And they said, hey, we're going back home. And I think that that instruction at, you know, the 19-year-old Muhammad at the time or the 20-year-old, whatever the age I was, um, was a quite interesting instruction that I think uh, resonates for many um, to apply it to the local context. And the local context um, um, really is personified in that in the West African Islamic tradition, and then certainly as we talk about that journey into the New World into the United States. You talk about some really fascinating individuals and their snapshots of some of these folks who were brought to the U.S. as enslaved peoples and navigated kind of what you're talking about here, and also in that transformation of. Um, bringing Islam from West Africa to their circumstances in the U.S. I, I saw people like Omar Ibn Said, Ibrahima Abdurrahman. What was it like researching these people and learning about their stories? And I know with, uh, with Said, he had an autobiography coming from Senegal and going, going through Charleston. How was the research process for, for that? And can you tell us a little bit about some of these uh, people that you highlight in, in the book and their, their stories? Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because as a historian, but also having worked, you know, majority of my career, um, it's interesting. I had these simultaneous tracks. I was working for the U.S. government, working on counterterrorism issues and counterterrorism policy. Uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, but domestic, uh, globally speaking, but Africa was also my specialty. 
and having traveled to the continent on a regular basis, um, um, dealing with these issues and writing particularly presidential daily briefs and providing analysis to the White House and National Security Council, I've had a kind of interesting experience because on my trips, um, um, providing support in various countries, I've also was able to see the lived Islam as well. And so um, we'll just use Senegal as, you know, one example is the late Sheikh Ahmed Bamba, who's, you know, both the visual aesthetic is seen all throughout the country and their transnational networks. Uh, Rudolf Ware has written extensive work on the walking Quran and um, is um, has really done a phenomenal uh, a body of research just on terms of this scholarship in this area. But but what I would say is that this these um, my experience there was also allowing me to understand these personalities in real time of what it means, the offshoot groups that were created. And so it's something that I think is important to highlight when we talk about West Africa. Um, on top of the Islam and the technical Islamic sciences. And I highlight in the book is also the role of Islamic spirituality. And, and, and oftentimes it's tasawwuf. But it's really important because I think oftentimes in our Western frame, when we think about Islamic spirituality or Sufism, it becomes deduced to um, Beyonce's son, whose daughter, I can't remember which one, whose name is Rumi. Um, and uh, it's sort of a very Anatolian Turkish whirling dervishes. Uh, the whirling dervishes are one expression of Sufism in an Anatolian Turkish context. But Sufism manifests itself in a many in, in, in Islamic spirituality manifests itself in a different form in West Africa as religion as culture does, and so this form of Islamic spiritual science um, in a West African context, um, and as I highlight in the book, um, uh, work is works on the inner um, uh, meditation, the inner reflection, the inner digging, the inner. Um, um, frameworks that distinguishes itself from the other side of the coin of um, individuals who might be very ritualistic and legalistic. And I think the, the Islamic spirituality, particularly, um, I, and, I, and I think just for the listeners, for those who have advanced understanding or just um, a base level understanding when we talk about Sufism, uh, you know, essentially you have individuals like you have Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists, et cetera, who, um, some who will do the very basic and fulfill their religious obligations. And, you know, for Muslims, they five daily prayers, uh, trying to go to um, Mecca once in a lifetime, um, fasting to Ramadan, giving charity, et cetera, is well known. But the, the, the mystics, if you will, the, those who subscribe to Sufism are essentially overtime Muslims who seek to do additional devotional acts. And so in a West African context, those same additional overtime acts of worship um, would be employed and practiced in a set of formulas as engaged. But Chikana Bamba appears for a West African context and he essentially becomes a black patron saint and individuals who are then able to see Sufism in an African context and them recognize sainthood, if you will. And, and sainthood isn't, I think for, for the, in the Muslim context, sainthood is someone who lived a life of perfection and lived a life of honorable behavior. And, um, and as you can imagine, various cultural traditions add various layers to it um, that sometimes then gets intertwined with folklore and other sort of traditions. But but Bamba is really important because he also appears in a time where the French also are on the scene, where we're talking about colonialism. And so various uh, narratives appear where Bamba was able to offer this religious formula as a form of resistance. Um, and not just Bamba himself, there are other West African, um, particularly Senegalese in the context that I'm mentioning, who were offering supplications and prayers in which they cursed Hitler. Right. And so for for these spiritualists, um, that's a means of wep that's a means of a, of a weapon, a more heavenly weaponly weapon for them to resist. And the other personalities, I mean, there are many others, 
But, you know, also when we talk about someone like Omar Ibn Said, or I should say Ibrahim Nias, and then I'll get into the American context, Ibrahim Nias is another very influential individual and uh, who leads the what becomes the modern day uh, Tijaniya movement, which is a Tijaniya movement, um, one of the major Sufi orders in the world, the Qadriya, the Tijaniya, the Naqshbandiya, and many different Sufi orders throughout the world that are well known. Um, and and I didn't mention, and I should have mentioned within the context of Sheikh Amadou Bamba, he establishes um, the Muradiya, which is an, an African-made and African-born Sufi order um, that Africans themselves could relate to. The Qadriya, the Tijaniya, their origins trace back to... Um, to the broader Middle East. And um, um, many of the Arabs are all about what's characterized as the silsila, the, the chain of narration. So can you trace your origin back to this person and going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad? And so these orders were essentially um, created um, as a means of what of consolidation of knowledge, consolidation of resources, consolidation of intellectual and spiritual um, uh, resources. Um, and Ibrahim Nias still has influences, and I, I should say, and particularly in the U.S., these movements also have uh, huge followers, as you can imagine, from uh, immer- second, third, fourth generation immigrants, but also, you know, American Muslims who are both uh, African American and also white American and Latino converts, who particularly Latinos, who are the fastest growing um, convert population of Muslims in the United States. Some of the individuals you highlight there must have been a challenge with the amount of sources available on them, but they're fascinating people. I, I want to read more about them. <laughs> yeah. You know, these individuals are phenomenal stories of, um, of, as I characterize sort of this revivalism renewal. Um, and also I think it's important to, to highlight, I mean, in the modern day context, when we talk about jihad and even we've started this conversation with language, you know, when we talk about when we talk about the Abrahamic faith traditions or particularly Islam and Christianity, their efforts are also about missionary work and the, the spreading of the good word, the spreading of 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 in this in those two contexts, a monotheistic way of life. And spreading of that knowledge also is by conquest and land. And so you you know, individuals uh, like Usman Donfodio, who led what's characterized as jihad movements throughout the um, th- throughout the, the 14th century onward, um, and he th- that was also an, an expansion of, of him getting this new religion and then also being excited by this faith, right? And this is another thing too, as well. You know, religion comes down from the Iberian Peninsula, and after makes its slow way down through a slow form of acculturation into the, and a fusion of both local traditions prior to Islam. And then also a slow uh, inculcation of their knowledge and, and slow progress into negotiating both a religion and their cultural practices and trying to fuse the two. That takes time. So, you know, it's often framed that many, when we look at expansion of religion, particularly expansion of Islam, you have both traders who are bringing their merchandise. And this is why if you go throughout the Swahili civilization, you see fusion of Iran, you see the fusion of, of India, you see spices exchanged, cardamom. I mean, these, these things are a, a result of interaction, their business interaction. So the same thing applies within the West African context as well, is that you have this businessman action and activity, um, unfortunately, very patriarchal. Um, and, you know, West African society, which is a separate conversation has a rich tradition of matriarchal. The big mama concept is not um, sort of out of, um, it's not just this random sort of kind of caricature that we oftentimes use in, in the Western tradition, but there's a reason why that big mama concept comes about because matriarchal societies existed prior to dominant Abrahamic faith traditions coming. But slight digression, but 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 these patri- you know th- this fusion of this business and also in many instances that spirituality and so you know the islamic spirituality that was infused along with the business interaction were part and parcel they were in many instances um 
you had one in the same. And so you have the spiritual traditions that, you know, and many of these early Muslim uh, reformers were adherents of these Sufi networks. And that's why you get these practices that then come into the new world, in this case, the United States, also in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, in Brazil. In 1835, the Malay uprising took place because Muslim, um, essentially enslaved Africans were resisting and challenging uh, the Portuguese. They were using formulas and amulets that they had learned and many individuals practices that they were cultivating back in their home country. Many Nigerians Um, and Omar Ibn Said, the individual you mentioned, arrives in 1807 in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I happen to be right now working with Spoleto, which is an annual arts festival, and I'm working on um, an opera that's being done on Omar Ibn Said that was supposed to come out in May, but because of COVID, it's being postponed to next year. And so what a fascinating, exciting effort of the artistic community doing doing an opera on Omar Ibn Said, who again, arrives in Charleston in 1807, escapes a brutal slave master, and then and then pops up, if you will, um, outside of what we would consider kind of modern day Charlotte, North Carolina. And he's locked up, he's incarcerated, he writes on, this, on his jail cell wall, Arabic, right? And this questions the assumption that what enslaved Africans couldn't read or write. But Omar bin Said is able to write his autobiography from memory. Omar Ibn Said had learned from his um, from his uh, family member and studied with an imam for twenty five years. That doesn't go away. That's 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 a that's someone who uh, is absolutely a scholar, but also absolutely just an ordinary person. And that's that's another thing. It's this idea of when we talk about these these individuals who arrive in the new world. The extraordinary life of Omar bin Said, the extraordinary life of Yarrow Mahmoud, the extraordinary life of Ibrahim Abdurrahman, just a few of them. But in many respects, they were absolutely ordinary. They were the kids who actually, and the young men who paid attention in school. And they decided to take that knowledge that they were raised in, and they were able to then, um, it, was, it became a lived Islam, where they then were able to apply it. And I think that that right there really is very telling when we look at these personalities and and how we found Omar Ibn Said's text that he writes in Arabic and he starts off um, very eloquently. And it's so impressionable in my mind. It begins in Arabic. Blessed be he who has dominions over all things. He who created death and life, for he is all forgiving, most merciful, right? And it's so interesting that he would capture this and he would recite the Al-Fatiha and he, re- he would describe in classical Fusha and Arabic various locations with mistakes as memory happens, right? But he uses these interesting references of words, right? Blessed be, and this is Surah Mulk, very popular verse, Quran, that's used oftentimes at the time of death, uh, oftentimes as a form of protection, that he would reference this sort of that, blessed be he who has the dominions over all things, a verse from Quran. And then he said, he who created death and life, right? Perhaps a physical death, perhaps a spiritual death. But he was also very vigilant and he had absorbed this. Was he was he using these things for a reason? Was he given instruction before he left to say, hey, listen, I know you're going to be going into this new new society, but these are the formulas that you have to protect you. I mean, these are questions. These are as as a historian, as an analyst that we're trying to piece together. We don't have the answers, but we're trying to piece together an image, a picture of these individuals. And Yara Mahmoud, 1752, arrives into Annapolis, Maryland, on a slave ship called the Elijah. And he appears and moves into what we know modern day Washington, D.C., in an area called Georgetown, that then at the time was heavily dominated by African Americans, very different than sort of the demographic layout now. And he 
and myself in particular, um, we, I worked on an effort where I was um, working with the DC archeological project where I served as an advisor back in 2000, Ooh, time moves, I think 15, 16. And we were looking for his grave based off of his account that are the account that he was buried in Dent place behind in the backyard. We looked, we searched, we didn't find him, but we offered a ceremonial um, religious prayer for him in abstentia. In the chapter we're speaking about Africanizing Dixie, you also expand out the influence of Islam among black and African-Americans. How does Islam fit in the history of the United States as the country moved from emancipation to periods of migration to escape racial violence and Jim Crow laws? So, you know, the, um, I, the, we oftentimes say, you know, Islam is American as apple pie, but really it truly is. I mean, um, Thomas Jefferson, our founding father, one of our founding founding fathers, um, was a student of, uh, of religion and, and culture. And he received his first copy of the Quran from an English merchant in the UK. And uh, as while he was a law school student at the William and Mary, we know he himself owned enslaved Africans by the name of Fatima Fatimir. Um, clearly Muslim names. Perhaps there were more because just because someone has a Muslim name or doesn't have a Muslim name doesn't mean that they might have not been Muslim. Maybe it was uh, they just adopted a new name. These are questions that, that you know, through time, I'm sure we'll get uh, some better um, uh, understanding on. Um, and so, you know, for early America, um, our founding fathers and many others, um, those who were members of theosophical societies, were very much inquisitive of what they of of the broader um, Islamic world, Arab world in particular. Um, lo and behold, I mean, they many of them would have not even known or not even thought, perhaps, that they even had Muslims amongst them as they were making and engaging in treaties and diplomatic perhaps track to diplomacy efforts with the broader Muslim world, whether, you know, Morocco itself and the debate is whether it was Morocco or France to recognize America's independence first. I won't, I won't, I won't get into that debate on who, but, uh, but, but essentially, you know, in 1776, Morocco was at least on the conversation of recognizing America's independence. And so this is a, you know, a Muslim majority nation who has had interaction. We have, Ibrahim Abdurrahman, we have the very famous story of the prince amongst slaves um, who, you know, who was literate in Arabic language, which is really important when we talk about these enslaved Africans. And I've said this, you know, through, um, throughout the book is that these individuals were not Arabs. They learned Arabic language and mastered it. And I think this is really important to help folks understand, um, you know, language for individuals takes time and these individuals were able to despite their journey through the slave you know slave ships which were horrendous conditions and brutality and trauma were able to keep that knowledge with them and write down and talk and communicate this information for generations for us to communicate and dialogue with this now which is quite profound and so you know the Prince Among Slave was often, you know, sort of this, this, this term, Prince Among Slave, you know, this individual was able to write this narrative to then, that then goes to John Quincy Adams, who's, you know, then president or, or, or who's, who, who then communicates to the consul general of Morocco, excuse me, he writes a letter to the consul general of Morocco that then writes a letter to, um, and he writes in Arabic that then goes to John Quincy Adams that then, uh, it requests his freedom because he's, uh, a, a prince and, you know, but, but uh, let's just stop right there. He's able to write a letter through various means because of a plantation owner who then recognized this as a man of knowledge and uh, sophistication. Perhaps there was a bit of exotic he was, objectification and a bit of exotic kind of framing of who is this, you know, Negro? Who is he? What is he doing? But he writes this letter that then makes its way all the way back to Washington and then it helps him get uh, with, with the attempt to get his freedom to make a very long story short. 
he attempts to head home and right before he's able to make the full circle back home, he dies. And I think that that's a really telling story, right, of, of these personalities. And, and perhaps, there are, perhaps there are hundreds more whose stories are out there that we haven't quite read. I mean, Omar Ibn Said's work and others perhaps are, are in private homes, trunks of conversations that families dare not talk about, who remember, you know, individuals who were praying toward the East and speaking in gibberish, you know, the workers, WPA, Worker Progress Acts in the 30s, commissioned by the U.S. government, were telling stories of the Gullah Geechee and they remember in narratives where they say, hey, I remember my father, my grandfather who was praying toward the East and saying some words to, like Allah, right? Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash, a wonderful body of work, a film that talks and captures this, these, these stories as well, opening scene where an individual is on the beach and he calls the Adhan, the call to prayer, right? You know, it's so interesting what that means. And so just to wrap up your question is, is I think that really what we have are these really compelling stories of these individuals who are um, in this new world who are seeking to survive. In the moving forward, the the civil rights era is where many Americans may be more familiar with Islam and the black community through people like Muhammad Ali and the Nation of Islam. Can you speak to how American perceptions of Islam have been shaped through this period? Yes, you know, um, there were, it's it's interesting, you know. Um, I didn't mention, but, you know, in, in Baltimore, Maryland, October 1st, October 15th, 1782, or late 1700s for sure, could be wrong, either 1782 or 1762, um, there was two showings of Muhammad the Prophet. Uh, it was a play. And it was, it was, it was a play um, that essentially was depicting the Prophet Muhammad um, as this sort of lying imposter. But um, it was actually a rendition on the works of Voltaire, um, who, who um, a French play that was describing Muhammad the Prophet. It only had two showings, but again, in the American landscape, why would it be shown unless, you know, there was some curiosity, certainly the French, um, curiosity with the broader Islamic and Muslim world. And getting to your point, and I'm going to lead up to the, to the sort of key personalities that we're very familiar with is that we also have quite interesting enough in the 1900, I mean, really the, after that 40 to 60 year gap, and I think this is really important so that we can lead up to the modern day sort of stories of key personalities. You essentially have that, that gap that was severed and you have these communities that are being recreated. <clears throat> and in the 1900s, the first wave of what we know would be loosely characterized as Sunni Orthodox movements were from the Ahmadiyya movement. Now, as you know, in, in, in Pakistan, the Ahmadis have been discriminated against in religious persecution. And so an individual by Mufti Muhammad Sadiq arrives into the United States who was sent from Pakistan or India at the time. And he comes into the United States initially seeking to um, meet this new message for Americans and wanting to target specifically to white Americans. He, ra he learned rather quickly, not knowing the local context, that white Americans were not interested into his message of, um, of this Mohammedan message, right? As oftentimes characterized when we look at early Islamic right or writings of Islam throughout um, in, in, um, in what would be the United States or, or the UK or in Europe, et cetera. And he arrives and he, sa he says, well, I need to pivot really quickly. And he realized there's a message to be had for African-Americans, right? Colored mm -hmm. Negro populations. And I stop and I say this because when we talk about modern day American institutions, there would not be a modern day American institution without the enslaved African experience. And secondly, the, and the influence of the Ahmadiyya movement. Now, the geopolitical challenges of that, um, particularly when we look at when Mahashwa Ali, the famous actor, received an Oscar for his work on Moonlight just a few years back. 
the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. said congratulations, but within minutes, she didn't. She had taken down that message because she had not realized that Mahasha Ali was actually Ahmadi, an African American Ahmadi. At that, the early um, Islamic hybrid movements, the Nation of Islam being one, um, were a fusion of Ahmadi Islam. Uh, black nationalism, spirituality, Freemasonry, all fused into one. And that was the nation of Islam, sort of an amalgamation of these traditions in light of the context of growing up and living in American context. And so, you know, what, what, what many scholars would argue to say, and I think what I, part of my assessment is that the, the, the Ahmadi movement, those early religious officers, if you will, like in, you have intelligence officers, those early religious officers that came to the U.S. realized they needed to come up with a formula that addressed specifically the plight and condition of the African-American. Absolutely, there were separate tracks in much smaller numbers of Sunni movements um, that brought Sunni orthodoxy. Yes, in very smaller numbers, there were Sufi and Shia proclivities. <clears throat> but when we talk about Islam gaining root in the United States, and we talk about this Islamic hybrid movement. So you have Noble Drew Ali, which I highlight in the book, the Moorish Science Temple, which was a, this fusion of a black identity connecting back to Morocco and a, um, and a hybridity framing of how they saw the world, a reverse engineering of how they see Islam, but with, true, with, with elements of orthodoxy as well. And then the Nation of Islam, which was this movement in the, in the 20th century that absolutely took the attention of, uh, of black American consciousness, but American consciousness, the, the, the evolution of, of individuals like Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, they come on the stage as a form of resistance against uh, the state, as a form of resistance against hegemony, as a form of resistance against uh, what they would characterize as state violence is a form of resistance against um, uh, of, of brutality. And so really this was, um, you know, it was uh, both a religious movement, but deeper than just a religious movement, high frame the nation of Islam and these Islamic hybrid movements. It was, um, these were social reform movements that brought about change. And, and so when we, when we, when you see that evolution in the nation, um, and also their practices, um, were a direct Islamic hybridity that would be very different from what we know, mosques, masjids that would be very well known throughout West Africa, through East Africa, throughout uh, Iran, through Bahrain, Oman, wherever you are throughout the broader Islamic world. And I think that's quite important to highlight. Um, because really you have a, you have a new people that were being created in a, in a new identity. And then 1952, 1965 are, are really important because you have the immigration and nationality acts that bring massive waves of immigrants coming from what we know the broader from South Asia, from the Islamic world, from the Arab world. And, <clears throat> but, but, but really let's go back further. 1964. I mean, the Civil Rights Act becomes a monumental watershed moment because the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act also is a critique on the American state, but it also brought pressure to allow other groups to come in. So it's quite interesting that I think all these connections of sort of broader freedom and liberation for those of African descent in the United States were very much uh, also bringing opportunities for, in this context, um, co-religionists for African-American Muslims who would benefit off of this. And in 1975, you had the largest mass conversion of American Muslims <clears throat> to Sunni Islam, Orthodox Islam, or just Islam in general by the son of the late Elijah Muhammad. And uh, W.D. Muhammad rejects his father's teachings, who he characterized his teachings as, again, not being part of normative Islam. And he 
characterizes this, uh, he encourages the community to say, hey, after his death in 1975, we need to move the community to a direction which both recognizes our American heritage, but also our Muslim heritage and fuse it um, into one. And so he radically changes the landscape of American Muslims and particularly African-American Muslims and brings about this slow change uh, and takes out the pews because also um, the way that members of the nation of Islam were were performing their prayers, as I I called it, an Islamic hybridity, a social reform movement, were, you know, not consistent with what we would be familiar with in the broader Islamic world. The way they would fast would be just being the month of December rather than following the lunar calendar. All this is quite interesting, quite telling in terms of how we, you know, see that evolution. And so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's well known, and and these key personalities um, are 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 a direct result of this sort of movement of 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 the of the nation, but also the the movement of the late W. D. Muhammad, who um, to this day has a network of over three hundred plus mosques throughout the United States and the Caribbean as well. I want to talk to you about the title of the book. When I first when we were first corresponding, I thought, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't give it a lot of thought, but as I read deeply, it's a very provocative title in a way, America's Other Muslims. Who are the others? And when you talk about the, the extent of the percentage of African-Americans as the Muslim population in the U.S. and um, policy changes that have impacted Muslim communities, especially since 2001. What is that otherness? uh, How does that come into play in this discussion about Islam in America? So, yeah, this is a really good question. You know, I I did that purposely when when I said America's other Muslims, because the indigenous foundational Muslim community in the United States is a result of the enslaved African legacy. And and the the builders of what we know the modern day American Muslim institution um, is not the Isna or the the Ikna, the Kir or the Zaytuna, regardless of where you are politically on these organizations. It is these enslaved. It is it is the it is the memory of Muhammad Ali as being the most popular name, uh, his name, and resonates throughout the world. It is it are it's these uh, it is the influence of jazz musicians. Art Blakely, McCoy Tyner, <clears throat> Yusuf Latif, who were a plethora, who were a diversity of Islamic ideological persuasion, but who were authentically African Americans as well. And <clears throat> so the other Muslims are is this this idea that when we look at the modern day in the 21st century, there has this been this slow erasure of black Islam and with the ascendancy of the Muslim student associations in the sixties and then um, immigrant Muslim communities coming into the United States. Um, they, there has been a new discussion of the Sunnah. When we think about Islam in the modern context, it is not this level of activism that individuals are very familiar with of consciousness. I mean, every African-American family has had some interaction with a Muslim, a black Muslim, whether they were a nation of Islam or unfortunately because of the prison industrial complex or whether it has an, an individual's conversion in prison or there has been the, the use of the bean pie um, in, in urban communities. When you talk about Islam for African-American communities, it is it is a black Islam. It is one rooted in um, of, of change. And, and yes, Farrakhan's perspective of being on the periphery, but 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 one in which they're familiar with because they've had at least some interaction. Even the the father Jacob Blake, whose son was uh, shot seven times this past week, um, he mentioned quite interestingly. He his name was Jacob Blake did not have a quote unquote Muslim name, um, and he said he started off. He said, "My family is diverse, and if you allow me, I want to do something for my son." He recites the Al Fatiha in Arabic. 
which is the opening chapter of the Quran. The rest of the family were, you know, Muslim, excuse me, Christians. And I thought that was quite telling of where that consciousness is uh, in black America is that you one doesn't know all the time. And he, that was totally out the blue. And I think that what's happened is this America's other Muslims that what, who the community that helped cultivate and develop what we know American Islam has now become the other. And their erasure has been has been removed from the landscape. And so, yes, the first American judges and doctors and <clears throat> excuse me, elected officials um, come from many of these African-American communities that I've already highlighted. And now we have, <clears throat> you know, Keith Ellison, Andre Carson, first two elected congressmen. And then we have a new sort of form of wave of activism. <clears throat> Um, that's Ilhan Omar and Rashida Talib, whose 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 perspectives are quite different than than those two. And, and you look at Andre Carson, who comes from a law enforcement background and was a member of the um, um, House Intel Intel Committee as well. Very different level, of, I think, perhaps pragmatism than maybe we might see of um, of the two women congressmen and their politics and their perspectives as well. Towards the end of the book, you talk about the policy nexus and how some of this history and the legacy of Imam W.D. Muhammad might be impactful. Could you speak about that a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, you know, what I offer is, you know, the community offering some amazing gems to consider and policymakers are always looking for what can they do in terms of what are formulas that are successful? I mean, W.D. Muhammad, who dies in 2008, got considerable criticism while he was alive or early days in the 80s and 90s for doing interfaith dialogue, which now in America, Muslims are like, oh, this is what we normally do. Uh, his engagement, He's ahead of the time. Really. Ahead of the time. He was, he was promoting um, political participation. He was promoting uh, creating an American school of Islamic thinking. Um, he was encouraging a healthy sense of patriotism, independent thinking, um, all, all these things that seem all, the conversation of the day. And I think that these formulas that he offers a step-by-step formula away from real and or perceived grievances. I mean, the community who are African-American, African-American Muslims had real grievances to have against the state and could have easily stayed in the direction of Elijah Muhammad's divisive and his critique um, and his rhetoric and could have gone down the narrative of of what Louis Farrakhan is essentially doing. But they made an about face. And, you know, W.D. Muhammad was excommunicated four times from his father's community because he was he was he was challenging his father. He was resisting against his father. And that resistance was him trying to create um, both an American identity and a Muslim identity and being one in the same. And so what I offer is I think that these formulas can be very important for other Western liberal democracies who are who are wrestling with and reconciling, can they be both American and Muslim? One of the eulogists at Muhammad Ali's funeral said that, that, that Ali was able to KO the idea of being both American and Muslim, that you, that they are mutually exclusive. No, you can have those. But I think it was, it was, it was that tradition of what Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali came from and also the, the, the legacy of W.D. Muhammad and the community was able to offer resilience, right? The ability to absorb a shock and be able to go through difficulty and challenges. And I think that these gems are incredibly helpful when we think about broader issues of transnational extremism, certainly within Muslim communities, but also other groups who are disaffected and frustrated and, and finding some really incredible nuggets of, of, of success. So I offer um, this this idea that this community is able to engage in a 40, 50 year plus de-radicalization program away from the nationalism, um, real and or perceived away from the rhetoric of of uh, of racial uh, of, of racial de- of, of racial tension and then move into a, a, a way of, 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 of progress, if you will. So um, I think for policymakers, both here in Washington, in London, Kuala Lumpur, in Copenhagen, um, 
um, elsewhere, this can be incredibly um, helpful as we find ways to um, integrate individuals into society, but also find formulas for success. Well, Mohammed, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on next? Yes. So I am working on, um, I have a book that will be out in a couple of months on Quilliam's de-radicalization efforts uh, for the past 10 years. And I'll be coming out with Oxford University Press in a couple uh, couple months. COVID, it might be pushed back slightly. Um, and then another piece looking at how do we rethink Gullah Geechee culture and tradition um, and recentering that. Um, so as you can hear, it's a very, pardon me, there's a, there's a very interesting balance between my policy work and then also my historical work. And then I'm constantly writing shorter pieces. I just had an article that came out in foreign policy about um, Iran's recruit, excuse me, um, Iran and Russia using a similar formula um, to target U.S. forces in Iraq, sorry, U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and the same thing we've seen in Somalia. And so um, my work is both at the intersection of foreign policy, uh, combating extremism, and then broader kind of African affairs and issues as well. Well, I hope we get to have you back on the show for your future works. And thanks for coming on today. Pleasure. Thank you. America's Other Muslims, Imam W.D. Muhammad, Islamic Reform and the Making of American Islam by Muhammad Fraser Rahim is available now from Lexington Books. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.